Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the War Memorial Opera House on this Friday evening, the 1st of February, 2013. Thank you for coming to the San Francisco Ballet Meet the Artist program, which is produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm Cheryl Osola, a writer for San Francisco Ballet and editor-in-chief of Dance Studio Life magazine, and I have a treat for you tonight because my guest is former dancer and artistic director, Mena Gilgood, who set Sweet on Blanc for us. Please welcome her. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome our online listeners who tune into these Meet the Artist interviews via podcast. Um, you'll find those and a lot of other goodies like videos and the company's blog, Open Studio 455, on our website, sfballet.org. So please check it out. My guest, Mena Gilgood, was born in London and trained there and in Paris, Cannes, and Monte Carlo with an array of teachers that included Julie Sedova, Olga Probajanska, Tamara Karsavina, and Rosella Hightower. She danced with the Marquis de Cuevas Company, Maurice Béjart's 20th Century Ballet, Berlin Opera Ballet, and London Festival Ballet, which is now English National. Uh, in addition, she performed all over the world as a guest artist, including partnering with Rudolf Nureyev. Later, she directed Australian Ballet for 14 years and Royal Danish Ballet for two, and she served as artistic advisor for Houston and English National Ballets. And yes, she is part of the famous Gilgood family. The actor John Gilgood is her uncle. In 1991, Mena was named an honorary officer of the Order of Australia, an honor given to her for her years of contribution to the Australian Ballet. So uh, Mena has a long history with Sweet en Blanc, and we're gonna get to that in just a minute. But first I wanna give you a little bit of background. Sweet en Blanc was choreographed by Serge Liffard for the Paris Opera Ballet in 1943 which, of course, was the middle of World War II and must have been a nice little bit of beauty in their lives. Um, it is set to music by uh, Edouard Lalo for a full-length ballet, Namuna. Uh, just excerpts of that are used for this. And uh, San Francisco Ballet is the latest company to acquire Suite en Blanc. It's been done by half a dozen or so companies around the world and including, quite famously, a production by the uh, de Cuevas company that was done without Lifar's permission and resulted in a well-staged duel. So video, actually, yeah, movie cameras were there and the whole thing was a great publicity stunt and you can actually find it on YouTube. So Lifard danced with uh, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, where he created title roles in George Ballantine's Apollo and the Prodigal Son, began choreographing there, but really his choreographic career took off at the Paris Opera Ballet. Um, he had a stint at, uh, when he founded Nouveau Ballet de Monte Carlo, came back to Paris Opera as its artistic director, and um, 
not, not only did he create quite a few ballets, but he managed somehow to write 25 books in the process. So Mena, Sweet en Blanc has been with you for almost your, well, actually your entire career. So can you tell us a little bit about your introduction to it and um, how it's influenced you as a dancer? Absolutely, I'm delighted to be here. It's a great pleasure. Uh, indeed, as Cheryl says, Sweet en Blanc has um, almost started off my career and followed me throughout. Uh, first meeting, I was asked to do a gala in Paris when I was studying there uh, to dance the famous La Cigarette solo, which is the one that all the ballerinas want to do in Suite en Blanc, although many of the different diverts are actually very lovely dances and all very different, but the cigarette is, is very special. And I had the honor, I was 15, to be coached by Serge Liffard himself. He was in fact still occasionally dancing, more mime roles and uh, afternoon of a fawn and ballets like that. Um, and he found time to um, coach me privately on La Cigarette. Hence, I know that uh, one of the little themes in this solo is his joke that uh, there's a, a port de bras which is like the cigarette smoke in the beginning. You'll, you'll see it tonight, and she goes, you're supposed to visualize the cigarette smoke. So I, I danced that solo aged 15, and then very soon after, my second company, my first company was Roland Petit, and then I joined the Marquis de Cuevas company. And in that company, one of my first roles was in the corps de ballet, one of the tall ladies, there are four tall ladies, four medium-sized ladies and four smaller ladies in the corps de ballet. And I was one of the tall ones. And I also learned the, the dance uh, in the long tutus, the very lovely sieste, which starts off the ballet in a way uh, that makes it completely unexpected what you see next, in fact. Later, when the Marquis de Cuevas company folded, um, it had an, uh, an offshoot using their sets and their costumes, and in fact, we toured the United States. Ah, oh, now that must have been the first time that we did Sweet en Blanc in the United States, in some form, because it was somewhat um, reduced. I had forgotten that previously. And we did uh, One Night Stands by bus, the old way, and there I danced the cigarette, the pas de trois, uh, the flute solo, the pas de deux, almost all of those. So I danced pra practically every number in the, in, the, in the piece, and I feel as though I've danced the male solo as well because I've now rehearsed it and coached it so many times that it feels also very familiar. Later on when I stopped dancing, well actually before I stopped dancing, when I joined the London Festival Ballet, it was also a staple uh, of that company's diet, of repertoire, and so performed in, in it many times. Stopped dancing, and then I started directing the Australian Ballet. And in that company, Suite en Blanc was also. Uh, it had been staged by Serge Liffard two years before I took on the direction. Uh, consequently, I reproduced it four or five, maybe six times, and that company came and did it in its entirety 
I think for the first time in New York, uh, which would have been something like 1990, I'm terrible about dates. <laughs> um, and we performed it, in fact, together with uh, Giselle. I it's such a wonderful display piece to show all the principles of a company and also the depth of talent, as you will see. So it's, uh, it was a way of showing off the complete company. And then uh, later on, I staged it in Hong Kong. I was, because uh, I was given the right to stage it amongst uh, two or three people who can stage it in the world. Hong Kong Ballet, uh, Houston Ballet, and just recently, last year and the year before, uh, English National Ballet. So, yes, it's very much a ballet that has followed me. And you said, how has it influenced me? And we were actually just talking about that with one of the dancers who's doing the siesta for the first time, Doris Andre, tonight. And um, I was talking about the fact that it, um, it was one of the ballets that I did right at the beginning. And I think it taught me a great deal because it takes classical technique. It's difficult technically. It has quite a lot of virtuosity. Um, but the way I was taught it, it was all about how you sell it. The French have a saying uh, to dancers when you're rehearsing them, vente à salade, sell your lettuce, <laughs> sell your wares. <laughs> and so that, this, this was the ballet where I learned to sell my wares and not think about the technique and discovered that really it works much better that way. Um, there's a tremendous uh, sense of style that is inherent in the ballet. As I said, each number is a little bit different um, in personality, and that's why it's also fun to cast. And some people are a little bit more suited to one type of role than the other. There's a very soubrette one. There's the beautiful pas de deux, which is all lyricism, and you can almost make it into a Romeo and Juliet. Um, there are pretty infinite uh, possibilities. But I think this um, teaching one not to focus on the technique, uh, that was one of the most valuable things about it. And to take classical ballet with a bit of humor, doesn't, uh, it, it, it could be more present, I think, than it is. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Mena Gilgood. So, you know, just going back to that idea of presentation, you know, I, watching rehearsals last fall, I mean, one of the things you were really working on was, was basically this idea of what I, you know, having a mindset of you can, you can think, I'm doing this beautiful, difficult thing, and you can admire it, or I'm doing this beautiful, difficult thing, and it's for you. And there's a real difference in how that comes across. I wondered if you could just, some of that is, is through epaulement, some of it is... Um, well, this is a ballet that uses real classical epaulement, as well as this, um, this slightly Egyptian style um, movement, so that they're, they're quite often in two dimensions. So they'll be walking one way, but they still be flat across this way rather than facing the way they're going. So that is very special to Lifa's style, actually in most ballets. But the, 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 the selling, the, the, the vente à salade, it's, it's, it works for some ballet, it's right for this one, 
but for instance, for a Kenneth Macmillan ballet, uh, the dancers are told that they need to keep, keep everything within the proscenium march and bring you to them. Whereas in a ballet like this, the dancers need to come out to you. And also, what I often say, don't put on the I am a ballerina face, you know? You know that one? <laughs> um, they have to be human beings, they have to be real. Yes, the corps de ballet need to be together, but that doesn't mean that they can't be human. And I think that makes all the difference. And it's also to share, share the sense of movement, because nowadays one sees dancers do the most amazing, and you certainly see it with this company, contemporary movement. And in that movement, they just abandon themselves and forward and sideways and backwards and undulating. And then, not here, but, but in some companies, you see those same dancers in a classic. And suddenly they're bolt upright and they don't dare to move. And then the audience is just looking and just checking how many pirouettes and how high was that leg. But they're not taken into the movement. And if a dancer really moves in the classical idiom, which is, after all, about movement, about dance, then they're going to engage you. And I think in the, in the best case, when I'm sitting in the audience, if I'm going and really annoying the people behind me, it means it's good. <laughs> I just want to explain, if anybody doesn't know, that epaulement is the use of the head and the upper body. So there's a lot of expression in ballet that can come through that. Um, one of the things um, I think would be perhaps interesting since they're going to see this ballet like immediately after we stop talking um, is if there's anything in particular that you can point them toward uh, moments of stylistic stuff that's specific, little storytelling moments, um, anything that you think would be good for them to notice. Uh, I, I don't think one should be really fed information about it. <laughs> um, I okay. mean, what, what you will fair. pick up Im immediately is ob obviously it's, it's um, a hallmark of a ballet is that S shape. I can't hold the microphone and show it. The, this, <laughs> this arm up here and the other arm in an, making an S, complementing it that way. And the dancers walk off, as you'll see in the beginning, like that in a somewhat uh, formal, manner, but with a touch of humor, we hope. <laughs> so we won't be specific, but there, there are some little gestural things, and little, almost little storytelling moments, so do watch for them. The, the, the actual pieces are named after the music score. Um, as Cheryl said, uh, Namuna was a full-length ballet, a sort of Arabian Nights tale. Um, I think it was danced at the Paris Opera in the early 20th century. And um, Lifar took some of the, the, um, some of the numbers, uh, which were already called La Cigarette, for instance, uh, the flute, to a flute solo, um, the pas de trois is the pas de trois, the finale is uh, Fête Foraine, um, like, a, like a funfair. Uh, so the, those are little clues to um, his ideas, but it, it's not a storytelling ballet. It's an unashamed um, display of 
personality, humor, and virtuosity, I would say. For those of you just coming in, I'm in conversation with Mena Gilgood. So we are going to have time for questions at the end, for, so you can start thinking of them now. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that I think is, is really interesting is, um, I guess what I would call transitions. As you've said, these, these are um, really like separate little pieces, sort of a series of divertissements. And there, you'll, you'll see the classical and the romantic, you know, there, but it's, but it's neoclassical. Um, and he links them together sometimes with the corps de ballet. So, you know, you'll see four men come through and then they just keep going and they're not in that piece. So can you talk a little bit about those transitions and, and kind of how they function? What do they do? Uh, well, the corps de ballet sort of introduced the cigarette solo and introduced the pas de deux. And, uh, oh yeah, I'll let you on, in on a little secret about that. Um, the four of the corps de ballet ladies come across the front just before the cigarette on their points and then take those typical lifar poses and four of them at the back on the black rostrum. And um, in fact, before the first night, we decided that for the pas de deux, which is the same introduction with the four girls and the four girls, because the music is very soft and the rostrum at the back uh, made a lot of noise when they were <laughs> bourreing along there. We decided that the noise was too distracting and so we took them out. But since then, they've been very cleverly finding a way of uh, silencing the top rostrum. So today, for the first time in San Francisco, you will see the bores across the back as it was meant to be. And let's hope it's silent. <laughs> um, I think it's time to do a little name dropping. So um, as I mentioned before, you, you performed with Rudolf Nureyev. And I, I'm sure our audience would enjoy an anecdote or two about that, if you can come up with one. Well, I danced with Rudolf Nureyev on two occasions. I danced the first time with Sleeping Beauty with him, five consecutive performances in Barcelona, the beautiful Liceo Theater. At the time, I was actually um, part of Maurice Béjar's Ballet of the 20th Century in a contemporary company. Um, but I was asked at the very last minute if I would come and dance Sleeping Beauty because there was an emergency with Rudolf Nureyev. So I, I didn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> and I had all of about uh, three quarters of an hour in a tiny little studio at the Liceo Theatre in Barcelona downstairs. I had never done Sleeping Beauty, but I had the good fortune to learn it with Lubov Egorova, who had, believe it or not, uh, rehearsed it with Marius Petipa, the choreographer of Sleeping Beauty himself. So that, so that it was lucky I had had that. And um, so we had the three quarters of an hour in the studio and he was very nice and it went okay and then we went up on stage and we did a dress rehearsal and that was it. Um, but contrary to some of the legends but also I think I know that sometimes it was true, um, he was not at all temperamental and most helpful and in between the performances we would work on different aspects of it and 
and he was great. And after the performances, each night we would go out to um, a Spanish restaurant, the Ramblas in Barcelona, and he would always have a steak. And he introduced me, which I then started doing the same thing, uh, to how to mop up the grease on the steak because you could never get it without oil or without fat. They love their oil in Spain. Uh, so he would take his napkin and blot the steak with his napkin. <laughs> Later, uh, the following year, I danced Kitri uh, to his Basilio in Don Quixote. And it was a wonderful experience because there I had three weeks of rehearsing together with the company. It was the Marseille Ballet. He staged the whole ballet. He showed every last detail through the corps de ballet, through to the principals, worked the whole day, did the class in the morning, rehearsed the company. Then we would go, meals were always important. They always are in France and Italy and Europe. And uh, we would go to an Italian restaurant next door, have our dinner, go back to the theater. Then he would do all his solos. This was eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening. And then he re-choreographed uh, the Gypsy Pas de Deux, the beginning of the second act of Don Quixote. And he re recreated it on, on me. He did a, a new version of it. So that was pretty amazing. However, in the performance, by the time we got to there, uh, it was rather a strange experience, because in Act Three Pas de Deux, we had the wonderful conductor, John Launchbury, a wonderful ballet conductor. And unusually, he was extremely slow with the tempi in the third act. It was almost like a funeral march. And uh, I was sort of busy dealing with it. And then I realized that Nurev was swearing, not so much under his breath, pretty loudly. And I thought, oh, he's really having a go at, uh, at Jack Lanchbury. And then later I learned that he was swearing at me the whole time. <laughs> and actually when we got to a balance, there was one of those. <laughs> you did something pretty unusual for a dancer, which was that in 2008, I believe, yeah, which was quite a few years after you had retired, you danced again on point. Um, what was that? Were you like sore for weeks? <laughs> How do you prepare to do that after so many years of not putting on point shoes? Well, it, it was absolutely extraordinary. I was visiting Maurice Bejar. I'd long left his company, long retired, been director of Australian Ballet, left there. And um, he was actually, he was, we were going home in the, in the taxi to the hotel. And he said, oh, um, you told me that you really like acting. You know, I have a piece that I did for Carla Fracci, and I'd like to redo it for you, but it would mean that you have to go back on point. And this was actually 2000 when he, when he first did it. So without even thinking, I said, yes, yes, of course, of course. When, when would it be? And it was, I think, about eight months later. So the next day, I was in class, as you can imagine, and uh, I'd had a hip operation about two years before that. <laughs> um, but somehow, yes, I got back onto point. Well, just bourreeing and doing a few bits. It was very interesting. It was fascinating. It was on uh, Happy Days, based on Be uh, Samuel Beckett's Happy Days. And Maurice Béjar transformed it into 
a ballet play. And the woman who is in the play buried into sa in sand up to her waist and then up to her neck. She's getting older and she's pretending that it, none of it matters. Uh, you probably know the play. And so Maurice transformed it into an aging ballerina. Um, and uh, instead of a mountain of sand, it was a mountain of, wait for it, pink point shoes. <laughs> and so it started out, there was a certain amount of text, and then the pink point shoes magically dispersed, and, um, and, there, and there was some dancing on point. And then I, and I performed that in, in Switzerland and in France on tour uh, over several months. And then, very sadly, Maurice Béjar passed away, but only, it is only three years ago, and I couldn't do it now. Uh, but uh, I was asked to do it in Australia. I had, I had uh, done the text in French, and then I was asked to do it in Australia, tra translating the text into English. So three years ago, I did it in Sydney, in Australia, and it was, it, the most amazing thing was uh, working with Maurice Béjar, as I, in a way that I had dreamed of when I joined his company when I was 19, 20, and never really got, I, I created some wonderful roles, but I was never like this time, three hours every day for three weeks in the studio with Bejar being part of a creation. So you never give up hope, it, it can happen in your, <laughs> in your late 50s. Oh, that's a great story, thank you. All right, we have time for a few questions, so if you have one, uh, please raise your hand. There must be someone in here with a question. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, the question is that her daughter is at the age where she's ready to go on point and, and she's being told she's not quite ready and what can you, what can you tell her? Well, it's, it's a very individual thing like, like so many things in dance, you know? And it's really a question of uh, the strength of the body. It's really not, I don't believe it's to do with age in particular, and there's nothing right or wrong with having to go on point earlier or later. It's like later if you're a professional dancer, uh, some dancers are ready to be given opportunities at the age of 19, 20, very early, and other dancers just as good quality and with just as much talent may not be ready until they're 25, 26, even 27 sometimes. So it's, it's a matter of um, believing in yourself, knowing that you've got a lot to give and working hard to gain, in this case, to gain the strength in your legs. Uh, so it's, you're considered to be able without um, any risk of injury to go on point. I'm sure it will happen. Anyone else? Yes. 
The question is, how, how would Mena compare her own experience as a young dancer uh, with what she's seeing in the young dancers she works with today? Yes, I think it's a very interesting question. I think the main difference is that um, at that time and, and prior to, to, to my time, dancers were very much categorized um, typecast. So you were a soubrette and you danced Coppelia or La Fille Malgardée, um, and pretty much if you were a classical dancer, you were a class classical dancer. And you, do, you went often doing contemporary. And if you were small, you didn't do Swan Lake. Um, and you were again categorized as a more romantic or virtuoso. Uh, so you didn't get anything like the diversity of repertoire that, that happens nowadays. Um, I was a bit of an individual, I think, even at that time. And um, unlike most of my peers, I left classical ballet when I was 19, 20, having always loved it, never thought of myself as anything else, and went to Maurice Bejar's company because I was fascinated by the way he attracted such an enormous audience of not necessarily ballet connoisseurs. And it excited me to have the opportunity to dance for such a wide-ranging audience from young to old, from all over, and all kinds of, um, of situations. Um, and so, so that was already considered quite um, quite bizarre, and then I, then I made my way back to classical and did that as well as what was then considered contemporary. But what the dancers have to do now, and this evening is a perfect example of it, to go from a ballet like Suite en Blanc, which is a, based on the completely classical vocabulary, even if it takes it a little bit off balance and shows you the, the process of taking classical ballet further out, um, and then through to Borderlands, which is, uh, I mean, just, just extraordinary what the dancers can do with their bodies and jump from the one to the other. That was not expected in the previous time, and I think that would be the main difference. Uh, like on the uh, first night of this program, uh, these dancers had a dress rehearsal of the whole program, starting with Suite en Blanc, the same dancers, the same cast, Suite en Blanc in the night into the very drastic um, borderlands which demands huge stamina. But demands on stamina are greater too. Although some of the old ballets surprise some of the dancers of nowadays and, and, and they, do, they do see that um, actually they, they did have some staying power too. Um, but then after that dress rehearsal, three hours later, they were back from the extreme contemporary to back to Suite en Blanc and back again to Borderlands. I mean, that is mammoth by any standards, even nowadays and in any company. I do think this, this company's dancers are more versatile than I've seen anywhere. I think you have one of the, if not the best company in the world, really. It's quite amazing, the range of repertoire, the range of dancers, the individu individuality of the dancers and the creativity of the dancers. That's unusual, that's lovely. And that's a great note to end on. Thank you very much, Mena. Thank you all for being here. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl.